0: Um, I want to start by just talking a little bit about that song that we sang earlier and really just kind of pulling a, a lyric off of there that's already been highlighted. But we sang um, this lyric, I will believe for greater things. That's not just a song lyric, I mean, that's um, taken right out of John 14. And uh, Jesus was meeting with his disciples in the upper room. John 13 through 17 is what's called the upper room discourse. And he's talking to his disciples, of course, it's the night in which uh, he was actually betrayed uh, prior to his crucifixion. And he said this among all the amazing things that he says in that discourse. He says this in John fourteen twelve. "'Whoever believes in me will also do the works I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I'm going to the Father.'" Now, that's, that's an astounding statement, by the way. I, I don't think anybody should like, just quickly read over that and go, oh, that's cool. It's not cool. It's awesome. And it's, and it's actually a bit mind-boggling to think about what Jesus actually says to us here. Whoever believes in me, if you're here today and you believe in Jesus Christ, you're going to do the things that Jesus did. And he said, you're actually going to do things that are greater than Jesus did. Does that I like catch you a little bit where you just go like, I'm not... Okay, let me do it this way. Let's review some of the things Jesus did and to see if the things that we're doing today are greater than those. Okay, he, It included walking on water. Jesus walked on water. Now I get that you could go down to Kemp Bay today and walk on water. I, I get that. That's a pretty easy feat in winter. But he walked on water uh, when it wasn't frozen. He fed 5,000 people. In fact, just... He also fed 4,000 people on a completely different occasion. He healed a man who was paralyzed and couldn't walk. He gave sight to the blind. He cast out demons from many, many people and brought them again to their right mind and heart. He stilled a storm and, and, and saw countless people literally leave their life behind to follow him. I'm just thinking about Matthew, for example. A lucrative business he was running and collecting taxes. Getting rich, collecting taxes on behalf of the Romans. But Jesus walks by his table, sees Matthew, and says to him, Matthew, come and follow me. And Matthew got up from his tax collector table, he left the booth, and he followed Jesus. That, too, is a greater work. It's part of what Jesus did awesome and amazing things. And Jesus said, again, I take you to the verse, that we would do greater works than these. Now, I'm like, how? Like, what greater works could I possibly do? What's greater than walking on water? What's greater than just producing food to feed 5,000 people? What's greater than casting out demons or, or, or giving sight to them? What's greater than that? Because as I assess the situation, and I'm sure you would assess it too in this very moment, you would just say, I'm not seeing any of that stuff going on. So what exactly are we talking about? Well, before we even ask the question, Jesus already answers the question in the verse. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. The whole thing is that we're going to do the things that we're going to do. But we're going to do it without Him in the room. We're, we're going to do it without Him right beside us. We're going to do it without having the advantage of seeing Him. We're going to do it without the bodily presence of the Son of God. Whatever we do, we're going to have to do it, in other words, by faith. By faith. We're going to do these things without the benefit of Jesus being visible and being with us. And and when we do these things, because of that very reason, these works are determined to be the greater works. Because they're done by faith, not by sight. Now remember Thomas, one of his disciples. The last one to believe that he was actually resurrected from the dead. Just didn't happen to be there any of the times that Jesus had appeared to the twelve. So finally, John 20, same gospel we're looking at, but in John 20, Thomas Thomas is there, Jesus shows up. And Thomas is still like, you know, like unless I see the wounds in his hand, unless I put my fingers into where the sword went in his side, I'm not going to believe. And Jesus, like so patient and so filled with grace and, and just takes Thomas aside and talks to him and allows him to see that he genuinely is Jesus raised from the dead. And then Thomas makes that incredible proclamation, my Lord and my God, and he believes. But then Jesus says this to him, and this is what's so helpful to us and actually speaks to us because then Jesus said to him, this is John twenty twenty nine. have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, that's every believer in this room. That's you, and you're blessed. A greater work has been done to save you because you and I don't have the advantage of ever having seen Jesus. We don't have the advantage of seeing the wounds in his hand or his feet. We don't have the advantage of being able to take our hand and put it at his side and feel where the sword went in. We don't have any of those advantages. And so we believe by faith and Jesus says, that's, that's the greater work. We have not seen him, and yet we have believed. So when you start to think about that, every conversion, the 19-year-old who just gave his life to Christ, is a greater work. He didn't see Jesus this morning, but he gave his life to him. Every baptism that we witness, every success that we have in ministry every new initiative and advancement every church that we help plant every marriage that's restored every addiction that's overcome all of these are the greater works and we know from studying the gospel we spent years studying the gospel of luke we know this it's never about the sign. It's never about those miracles. I know we're so enamored by the healings themselves, but the healings point to Jesus. They're never an end unto themselves. The healing is never the greatest work. Jesus challenged the Pharisees when they didn't like the fact that he had healed the paralytic. And Jesus said to them, what's what's the bigger thing, that I should tell this man to walk or that he should have the forgiveness of his sins? But so you know that I have the authority to do this, he's forgiven. He's forgiven. Which one of those two things is the greater work? The healing eventually is is negated by the fact that the man is still going to die, just like everyone in this room. But his forgiveness—that's eternal. That's the greater work. And we can easily default then, so we got it, I got it. I got the greater work. It's all these awesome things that happen around us. But that's the problem. Now we default into faulty thinking about the greater works. We think they're always good, they're always positive. It's always some kind of an advancement or, or some new ground that we're taking. We somehow think that unless the, the line on our, on our graphs, unless the line is always going up, that somehow something is wrong that somehow we're not doing the greater works of God or that God has abandoned us, that we're not in his favor, that we're not experiencing his presence or his power. But then that flies in the face of a lot of scripture. It flies in the face of what Job experienced in the loss of pretty much everything he had. It flies in the face of Sarah in her childlessness, the painful experience of that. It flies in the face of Naomi, who experienced the loss of her husband and her sons. But without that, there would be no Ruth moving to Israel. There would be no marriage to Boaz. There would be no inclusion of this Moabite woman in the line of Christ. It flies in the face of Joseph Sold into slavery by his own brothers, betrayed by them, but so that Israel would be saved during the famine. It flies in the face of Jeremiah, preaching the word of God, commissioned and called by God to do it, and when he did it, he got thrown into a pit. Was he not experiencing the greater works of God? Was God not at work in his life? Was he abandoned and forgotten? And outside of God's blessing, of course not. It flies in the face of what Stephen experienced when he was stoned to death, again for preaching the gospel, doing the very thing Jesus had said to the believers to do. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Stephen's doing it, and for that he's rewarded with death. Was it not a greater work? Paul. No one, no one has done what Paul did. He sailed and walked all over the Mediterranean world. He preached the gospel. He planted churches. He wrote 13 books of the New Testament. The Holy Spirit worked through him in a powerful, powerful way. And he spent the last part of his life all but forgotten and alone and in prison awaiting execution. Did God not do greater works in and through Paul? I mean, in every one of these cases, I I, I know you understand what I'm talking about. And in countless other examples in the word of God and in history and even in the lives of some of you here in this room, the greater work was being done in the midst of loss and persecution and hardship and pain and even in death i think we all understand that but i also get how hard it is for us to even reconcile that that's true it seems impossible for us to look at a person whose life seems like a train wreck if that guy's so faithful why do he end up in prison why is he in a pit if his message was so right why do people hate him so much If his life is so righteous, why is he so badly afflicted? We struggle with this. We look at train wrecks and we think that they're train wrecks because they caused it or God's punishing them. And it's not necessarily true. Can we look at the train wrecks and say, God's doing a greater work right there? Lots of train wrecks in this room, by the way. Right? I mean, I'm talking about the one where the cars are just piling up one on top of another. I mean, we, we live in a world, this is our struggle. We live in a world that's intoxicated by success. and We can't wrap our brains around this idea. And we become, if you know the story, we become like Job's friends. Friends. And their conclusion is, They just keep coming, and they're having conversations with him, and their conclusion at the end of the matter is, Job, you must have done something to tick God off. There's no possible way all of this could happen to a man who's righteous. When the reality is, the exact opposite is true. Job was a righteous and godly man. He had horrible tragedies fall on him and his family. And everyone, including his wife, I mean, with all the things Job lost, I bet you at some point he thought, I wish I'd lost her too. (laughs) I mean, she's the one who said, curse God and die, didn't she? I'm not wrong in saying this. He's like, Lord, literally you left me with her. Everyone, including his wife, thought that he must have been offside with God, and nope, loved God, served him with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. God was simply doing a greater work. Now, I want to, that is a foundation. Now, I want to take us back to a passage we looked at three weeks ago as we kind of got launched into this new year, we talked about, uh, this was from 1 Chronicles 19, Um. And I'd encourage you, like, that was a weather-affected Sunday, and um, if, if, if you haven't listened to that message, go back and see that, watch the video, or listen to the audio. It's on our website. But in First Chronicles 19, um, we're, Joab is there, and he's one of David's, he's David's principal general of the army. And he's facing the Ammonites in battle. And the Ammonites had gone ahead and and hired the Syrians as mercenaries to come at Israel at the same time so that Joab's army was surrounded on both sides, pinned in by the Assyrians on one side and the Ammonites on the other. And as the battle was about to begin... You know, Joab, what he did is he responded. He, he, he uh, came up with a defensive strategy. He responded by arraying his troops in two different directions. He gave his brother Abishai command of half the troops. And Abishai was going to face uh, the Ammonites. And, and Joab and his uh, half of the army was going to face uh, the Syrians. And they were going to go at it. And as the battle's about to begin, setting out his troops... He says to his army this incredible, powerful thing. He goes like Braveheart here, and he does the, the speech before the battle. You know the speech before the battle? The generals always do this. He gives the speech before the battle. First Chronicles uh, 19.13, he says this, Be strong, and let us use our strength for our people and for the cities of our God. And then he says this incredible thing, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. May the Lord do what seems good to him. Now, at that point, the battle has not even begun. We don't know who's going to win or lose. But there's this honest acknowledgement by Joab, this battle could go either way. He's not going into it arrogantly. He's not assuming that he has the victory. He, he just knows it could go either way. We're surrounded. I've had to split my army that I thought I was going to bring full force against the Ammonites. Now I have to split it and go against another army. I don't know how this is going to go. This could end up as victory for Joab and the armies of Israel. It could end up as defeat at the hands of their enemies. But what's significant here is that when we think of believing God for greater things here in our own church in 2020 and beyond, the lesson is whether Joab was successful or not, victorious or not in that particular battle, whether he lived or died at the hands of his enemies, is actually irrelevant to the story and to the lesson. It's irrelevant. I mean, I'm not even going to look at it here. You can go to First Chronicles 19 and look at it yourself, but the most important thing had already happened. The greater work had already been accomplished in this moment. Joab surrendered himself to the will of God no matter what. And that's when the victory was actually won. That's when the greater work happened. When you stand back before anything else happens and you throw yourself on God and you say, may the Lord do whatever seems good to him. And so what's the message in this for our church? As we go into this year. I, I have four lessons that I want to give to you pretty quickly. As we look for God to do greater things this year. Here's four lessons. Ready for these? Ready for these? Yeah, I, th- I thought so. First. We must make our plans. And work hard to fulfill them. In, in other words. No one is advocating by this. Some kind of resignation. Resignation to the plans of God without also doing the things that he told us to do. There's no like, okay, we're going to sit back and just kind of wait for it all to roll out. There's still an obligation on our part to be engaged in this. So we're going to make our plans and then we're going to work very hard. The gospel mission that we're on, as we stated, is to make more and better followers of Jesus Christ. And the context The priority that we have as we fulfill that mission to make more disciples, more and better disciples, is to love God and love people. And when you think about those two things, that's not kind of like a stand back thing. That requires a tremendous amount of intentionality. We have to be very purposeful and we have to think this through and then act upon the whole thing in a very diligent, hardworking way. In other words, we have to bring our best to the table every single day because the mission is still on that means the elders the staff team those who are servants in our church members of our church attendees all of us signing on to this mission making plans and working hard just as joab did he got his army ready he brought them to the battlefield He wasn't sitting back doing nothing. He was going in an advancing kind of way against his enemy. When he faced the obstacle, he didn't then stop and surrender. He came up with a new plan. And just as he was actively engaged in the battle, we're actively engaged in the ministry, making plans and reaching for more. Here's a second one. We must recognize that there are enemies facing us as we do that. I mean, Joab from the text, Joab faced obvious enemies here, Ammon and Syria, but also, um, it's not in the text, but you just, you just know that he faced some internal enemies, some internal battles that were, were going on as this second army comes bearing down on them. It's not hard at all to imagine what the soldiers in the camp might have been feeling. That there might have been some significant fear and anxiety over what they were facing. Maybe some of them were even thinking of going AWOL and and bailing out and getting out before the battle. Many of them might have been questioning Joab's leadership. It's natural in the face of overwhelming circumstances, it's natural for us to question and, and to fear even and to have anxiety and to wonder if there's a different way. To be confused, to be, to be fearful in the face of opposition and enemies. And this is, the, this is the thing that faces us as followers of Jesus Christ and as a church. What we're doing here at Harvest, what we're seeking to do at Harvest is, I mean, this is the most important thing that is happening in the world today. The gathering of God's people for worship and the mission that we've been given, there's nothing happening in the world today. There's nothing happening in the world today that's more important than the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't care what all these important governments have and all their summits and their meetings and their little agreements and their trade deals, and all of it seems entirely so important. It's not as important as the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? It's just not. It's just not. And so here we are in our little corner of it with our little mission in our town, in our county, and we have this obligation now to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And listen, literally what we're doing is the darkness is all around us and the gospel, the light of the gospel is pushing that darkness out. Now, here's the thing. People like their darkness. Okay? They like their darkness. And so they're, they're going to oppose us on this level. We're we're seeking to push back the darkness in people's lives and introduce them instead to the light. And the light is the single most controversial person in the history of humanity, Jesus Christ. Nobody is more controversial than Jesus. And here we are, not only introducing these people who are in darkness to Jesus Christ, but then we're saying to them, We want you to um, follow him and love him and surrender your life to him and then go on mission for him. And and this is the totality of your life from now on. Whatever else your life was about before that, it is not about that now. Now it's entirely about Jesus Christ. And so, so it's natural that people are not going to be excited about that outside in the world where they love their darkness. But this church is about one thing. Strip away all the, you know, all the way we say mission statements and the four pillars and the three W's and all the different ministries we run and all of that, all of the trappings we put on it. And what this church is about and what every member of this church is about is exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2. 2. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the entire thing. If somebody says to you, what's your church about? Our church, listen, I decided, we decided as a church to know nothing in the city of Barrie and the county of Simcoe except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's it. That's the whole thing. But people don't like that. It's gonna saying that is gonna bring out the opposition. And we live in a post Christian society. Now, by the way, let's not get dis- discouraged by that whole notion, oh, the world today is so post-Christian. The world, listen, the world is not post-Christian. The world is not post-Christian. I just started, uh, I read an article yesterday, in fact, about a new book that's come out called Post-Christian by a man whose books I've read before. His name is Edward Gene uh, Veth uh, Jr., and he has this new book out that I have to get. But I read the article and and one of the things he says there is he's just challenging this notion that we live in a post-Christian world. We do not live in a post-Christian world. We live in a post-Christian country. We're not the world. We, we live in a post-Christian continent. And if we, if, we, um, if, if we look just across the ocean to Europe, our forebearers for, for most of us here, uh, that's a post-Christian continent. So we have two post-Christian continents. But listen... I need to tell you, Christianity is thriving at a revival scale in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. There, there's no concept of post Christian or irreligio- irreligiosity in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. The countries that we so um, passionately sent missionaries to for decades and centuries, are now leading the way in Christianity, leading the way in mission, leading the way in theology, and listen, are now sending missionaries back to evangelize the ones who first sent missionaries out. Because God's in control. And we need to lose the arrogance that somehow Christianity is still centered on North America. It is no longer centered in North America just as it is no longer, and hasn't been for some time, centered in Europe. God is at work. All of that was bonus, okay? We live, we, we in Canada live in a post-Christian context, but the world is not post-Christian. But because we're here, we understand that every value, every value that we espouse and believe is in conflict with the Values and beliefs of the society around us. Our culture is diametrically opposed to pretty much everything we believe, our worldview, the word of God, our authority. We're fronted on all sides by the prevailing view of the Western world, Western culture, and people are angry about what we believe. And so we should expect antagonism. And we should endure Endure to the very end that opposition. And that, in my mind, because you know, it's, the, it's the one who perseveres to the end that's saved. The one who perseveres to the end that's saved. And, and to me, that ability to endure in the midst of opposition, when people hate you and people are speaking against you and they tell you you're foolish for believing what you believe, the ability to continue to live like that in a society as hostile as ours is, in a post-Christian society, that's the greater work. If you can do that by the power of the Holy Spirit, if you can endure, you've done the greater work. And you've done it by faith because Jesus isn't there with you. You can't see him. It's awesome to think about. Recognize that there are enemies facing us as we do. Here's a third one. We must measure our success as God measures success. Success. Now, back to that phrase from 1 Chronicles 19, when we say, may the Lord do what seems good to him, that is a wholesale surrender to the will of God, and it's an admission that I don't actually know what the will of God is in this particular circumstance. I mean, generally, I know what the will of God is. It's for me to preach the gospel and for God to get the glory. I get get the revealed will of God. There's several things he's told me that I need to live out. But the the particulars of the the concealed will of God, I don't know how particular events are going to play out. But I need to be surrendered to those events and to what God is going to do. So may the Lord do what seems good to him. It's a wholesale surrender to the will of God. It's an admission that we don't know what the will of God is. We don't know what is best. We don't know what's actually advancing his all-encompassing plan for the world. We don't know those things. So whatever plans we make, God can do as he pleases. Amen? Oh, that was (laughs) half-hearted. Whatever plans we make, God can do as he pleases. Yeah, say it in faith, because it's hard. God can do as he pleases with those plans, and it might still constitute a success, even if it goes sideways from our perspective. Because what God is looking for is an acknowledgement that he is Lord of all. And and as soon as we acknowledge that, God, I'm making these plans. God, we're going to do this thing. We're going to go to this place. We're going to do this. But God, you are Lord. And we surrender to your, your will. The Lord can do whatever he pleases with this situation. That's a success. Joab did that. Now, just by the way, a word about Joab. He's a bit of a scoundrel. He's not really the best guy in the Old Testament, and he's certainly not someone that you're going, man, I just want to be like Joab. No one wants to be like Joab, okay? No one wants to be, but in this particular instance, his loyalty to the king and what he was doing for Israel and his acknowledgement of God, in this particular instance, he got it right. And we do what God has put before us We do it according to his will, and we do it, and by doing it, we do it irrespective of the results. And when we do it irrespective of the results, we're successful. The results of this particular battle in Israel's history are all but irrelevant. The question is, are we being faithful to God? No matter what. And then here's a, here's a last one. We must recognize that no one is indispensable to the mission. N- no one is indispensable to the mission. No one should have this sense like this, this is all going to fall apart if I'm out of it. I mean, the only indispensable one to the mission is Jesus Christ, Amen. Jesus is the only indispensable one. And again, we go to this phrase, may the Lord do what seems good to him. And in the case of Joab, this would have meant for Joab living or dying in the battle. He didn't know how that was going to go. Joab living or dying, irrelevant. The army of Israel being victorious or losing and them all being slaughtered on the battlefield, irrelevant. If Joab had died, God's story would have continued. It would have gone along a different path. God would have affected some other way to save Israel. But nothing can thwart the sovereign will of God. And when we're facing difficulties and and what we might deem as defeats, as individuals, as families, or even as a church, that does not mean that God has abandoned us. It does not mean that we're outside of his will. It does not mean that we are unsuccessful. It only means that God has chosen, you know, God chose this path over this other one. That his will is still being fulfilled. The only question, the thing that allows this to be a greater work, is did I surrender to his will beforehand? I thought about another person that illustrates this perfectly, and it's, it's Esther. And she was put in an impossible, difficult situation by her uncle, Mordecai, and he was a bit of a tool for doing what he did, and he put the whole nation of Israel in a really bad place, and, and then he had to leverage his relationship with his niece and put her in a position where she could save Israel, but it put her own life on the line. I mean, there's not anything really great about what Mordecai did. And poor Esther's just kind of like, she's just backed into this corner where she has no real option. And yet even in the midst of it, she exercises this tremendous faith and this great understanding of her place in, 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 in God's will. And so she says this, because the whole deal was, Mordecai said her, you got to go to the king and you got you to appeal to the king. And she knew The king hadn't called me in for months and months, and you couldn't just go in front of the king. You had to be summoned by him, and if you weren't summoned by him and you went in his presence, he could have you executed on the spot. But this is what Esther says, okay? I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. I will go to the king. I'm going to go, I'm on mission. Okay? Though it's against the law, there's obstacles, there's opposition, there's things that could stop me. And if I perish, I am surrendered to God's will. Then I perish. I am not indispensable to the plan, and God can still save Israel. That resolute determination, that faith, that admission that I'm not indispensable, but God's will is overall. That's what we have to have locked in as we head into this new year. Now, all of that, those four things, because back to the song lyric, there's nothing that our God can't do. There's nothing that our God can't do. And so, I will believe for greater things, whatever those greater things happen to be. Amen? I will believe for greater things, whatever those greater things happen to be. So that said, um, that's, the, that's the preach part. I did super well at staying in the chair during the preach part, didn't I? You have no idea how hard that is. You have no idea. Um, but here, I want to share some things on behalf of our elders. And this is going to sound a bit more like a, you know, a church business meeting. Uh, but these are things that we share together that are really important to us in our mission uh, as a church, and again, a little bit of a look back, a little bit of a look where we are, and then a little bit of a glance uh, forward in all of this. So let's start with um, a look at our financial status um, in 2019. Actually, just a, a general fun summary here. Really, really simple, and a lot more detail about five months from now. We're going to be at our annual members meeting. We'll have our financials. They'll be reviewed by our accountant and we'll have a lot more detail there. And I will just say this, that all of our past financials are available on our website. You can look at our T3010 on the CRA website. We're compliant with all rules. We have outside auditors that look at our financials. Everything is poured over and followed. Um, We follow very precise rules for all of this, but all of that information is available to you online. In 2019, general fund summary, we had revenues of $1.418 million. We're super grateful for that. But we did end the year with a small deficit of around $7,800. We had hoped to bring that up to zero, bring our budget to black for the year, but our spending just outstripped our revenues by $7,800. Now, we did report already, and you know this if you've been hanging around and listening at all, that 2019 was a pretty challenging year for us Uh, financially. We made uh, three budget cuts through uh, the course of the year. We curtailed our spending. We eliminated a number of vision initiatives that were on. Uh, The list, and then we put a big push on in the last six weeks of the year uh, to finish uh, the year in a good place. And uh, so we did end up with that little deficit, but um, but it could have been a lot more. Uh, You actually gave an additional over and above the regular offerings that we needed. You gave an additional seventy thousand dollars in December that really helped lift us uh, to that place where we were close to making budget. So thank you to those who participated in that and, and helped make that. Uh, the 2019 kind of end in a good place for us. Uh, Made for this uh, summary, made for this was our capital campaign for the last three years. It's a little better than three years. You'll remember those of you who were in the room at Timothy when we counted up those pledges and announced it that we had $3.2 million in pledges made. That was November 2016, uh, that campaign um, came to an end officially on December 31st, just a few weeks ago. And as of December 31st, just under 2.7 million dollars of that 3.2 was fulfilled. Now we do know that some of those pledges that were made in 2016 are not going to be fulfilled. Approximately 385 thousand of that uh, pledges that people made that, for various reasons, they won't be fulfilling. And um, we still are hoping that about 300,000, 304,000 of worth of pledges, where people are trending in the direction of continuing to fulfill it, and we're still receiving donations from them. We're still hoping to see another 300,000 come in off the pledges, which will take us very, very close to receiving three million of the 3.2. That was a real originally pledged, and there were in those numbers. I know all the numbers don't quite match up. We we had a bunch of people who didn't pledge anything and who gave money as well, and that kind of helped our number uh, be boosted a little bit along the way. Um, now all of those numbers and everything I just shared. One note here is that um, in in addition to our mortgage on the building purchase, we're still carrying eight hundred thousand now on the construction loan, and so that's what the capital campaign was for. So coming up short on that meant that we're left with this $800,000 construction loan at 8% interest. And so that's a bit of a, a difficult pill to swallow as we come into this new year. And if, you've, if you pledged to the campaign and, uh, and um, gave to the campaign over the three years, then you should have already received an email with your statement, the final uh, communication for the made for this campaign. So that's officially been brought to an end as of December 31st. And I just want to pick up off of what, you know, what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. But many of you during this three-year period have excelled in generous giving. And thank you so much for your generosity and, and uh, your faith to really believe and to make those donations. And we, we're receiving the benefit of all of that right now as we sit in this room and as children are using uh, the north end of the building. We're super grateful for all the ministry that takes place here in the course of a week. And I need to just encourage you not to let up now, certainly not to let up in your regular giving uh, to our operating fund, our general fund, but also if any of you can continue with your building pledges and just give to the generic building fund, that's just going to help us pay down that debt and make those payments faster um, over the course of the next uh, couple of years. Um, Let's take a look then. Those two things, the small deficit, the tight budget in 2019, and where the Made for This campaign ended – leads us to our 2020 forecast and budget. And I'll say this, we don't actually have a budget for 2020 yet. We have one on paper that's not yet finalized by the elders, and that's because we were waiting for some things to kind of land in place before we approved it. So the staff, we've just been really careful in not spending anything because we kind of consider that we don't have an approved budget yet. But we're going to set the 2020 budget at 1.418, which is a number you've already seen because that's the exact amount of revenues we received in 2019. We're just bringing that number over. We're not planning for any increased offerings in 2020. We hope there are increased offerings, but we're not planning for it. We're going to keep our budget under this number. That means a weekly need of 27, just over $27,000. Um, so we're still carrying this... Um, This loan payment, and that's part of these general fund um, monies now because the campaign is over. Everything is now in the general fund. So mortgage payment um, on the facility, loan payment for construction, all the ministry and partnership obligations, compensation of our staff team, facility operating costs, all of that is now in our operating fund budget. And it's going to be a challenging year for sure. And we need, again, everybody that calls Harvest their church home Uh, to be faithful and generous in their giving throughout the year. And you already see the weekly need there. And with the debt payments, you just need to understand that this represents a very bare-bones budget with no new initiatives planned in 2020 at all. And a good way to see this, and I know sometimes we can look at these numbers and just go, well, like 1.4 million, I I don't even get that number. It's a little hard for me to understand. I think for a lot of us, and I know this was easier for me, is if, if you just take what the numbers I'm talking about here in a moment, and you just lop one zero off of them, off of all of them, just take a zero off, and we think about our budget as a church as a household budget that I think is a little easier for us to comprehend. And I realize that these numbers might still be above where your household budget is, but it's certainly within the realm of possibility. So let's look at this graphic and let's populate uh, the one side to see this like a household budget. And let's imagine your household had, a, had an income of $141,000 a year. Plenty of people have an income in that neighborhood, combined incomes. Uh, say your home value is around $700,000. It's a little higher than the average here in Barrie, but it's still within the realm of, of realistic and the mortgage on that uh, property is 234000 So plenty of equity in the house. Um, but then this is, this is the one that's hard to swallow. Uh, also carrying a line of credit of $81,000. And um, man, if you've done the Dave Ramsey stuff, that's a no-no. <laughs> no line of credit like that, okay? Uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. But we also have some money in savings, and that's good. We have... Um, 13000 in our savings, and that's a bit of a combination. There's some building money in there, and there's some general fund savings in there that's unrestricted uh, donations. Some of it's restricted to the building. And then um, we have a checking account, uh, and I'm sure most of us don't have this much in our checking accounts, but this, this household has a checking account with $15,000 in it. So if you add a zero to all of those, that's our financial picture as a church. So you can see how every part of that makes really good sense. Income of $141,000 a year, a house value is good, the mortgage is reasonable, we've got money in the bank and savings, and when we had that little deficit, you know, for the church it was a deficit of of $7,200, but in this scenario, in this illustration, it's only a deficit of $720. So that, you know, relative to making $141,000 a year, that $700 deficit was just covered by money we had in our checking account. So we just roll into the new year that way. The big problem, as it would be for any home, if we were looking at an actual family who had this, the number one priority would be what? Got to get rid of that line of credit. Got to get rid of it. Everything else is affordable and easy and, and works. We got to get rid of the line of credit. And so we need to pay that down as fast as possible. The good news is the 234000 or $2.34 million that we owe on the building is um, a locked-in mortgage, five-year term. We have two years left on that at 5%. The line of credit is is exactly like a line of credit. It's open for prepayment, and but it is at 8%. But we can pay it down as fast as we want to. In fact, we just put $350,000 on it a week ago. So we can do that. And in fact, it would be awesome if someone here wants to drop 800 k on me this morning. Um, I'll have it paid off tomorrow, and I'll come back and tell you next Sunday. I mean, if... If anybody, I don't know why you're laughing. Like, I'm totally serious about that. Okay, and if a couple of you want to split it, that's fine too. Uh, I'm not, it doesn't need to come from one person. Um, but let's get that paid down as fast as we can. But that is going to mean belt tightening on our regular budget. I am grateful that we have uh, Jim Beattie. Uh, Jim and Ethel Beatty were part of our church for a number of years. And they moved to Gravenhurst a few years ago and are part of uh, the church up at Harvest Muskoka. But we uh, pressed Jim into service for us. Uh, We needed a special advisor on finances, and he's come down and and offered to do that for us this year. We're super grateful for him uh, doing that. He he was our treasurer while he was here back in the day. And we've just lacked a person with the right skills who has the capability to serve as a treasurer internally, so we've looked for uh, some people outside, and Jim's going to serve us for the next uh, six months until get us to the annual members meeting in June. All right, that's everything related to finances. Uh, some highlights on people numbers that I want to share with you. Uh, 2019, effectively, we had like a very small um, increase in, in uh, attendance 1.6%, I think it was, which is really within the margin of error. Like, we're just counting heads and such, so we could make a mistake there. So, in, this, in essence, we're saying that we, we didn't grow in 2019 um, in terms of our Sunday attendance. Um, we average just so you 're aware in case you 're ever wondering, we average about uh, nine hundred people a week with lower Sundays and bigger Sundays, of course. Uh, we have uh, twelve hundred and twenty five people though who say that harvest is their church home, and so on any given weekend we 're seeing about nine hundred of them, but twelve hundred over twelve hundred people call harvest our church home. That's kids and adults. And we have 323 members. We have 16 new members this morning. In fact, here's the 16 names. These are people who are just becoming members this morning, and we're announcing that to you. So we're super grateful for these who have said uh, harvest is our church home, and we're signing uh, to show our support uh, for what the vision is and mission here at the church. We're grateful for all. Let's welcome them into membership. Now, metrics are very important in ministry. This is the part of the planning that's really good and the working hard and the diligence. And one of the things in church growth that you have to be aware of is that uh, 70 when you're hitting 70 or 80% of your capacity in the parking lot or the worship center, and if you're feeling squeezed in your common spaces like lobbies and children's check-in, then you really will stop growing. And uh, we have an interest in at least making room for God to allow growth to continue. But right now, we're, heading, we're hitting our head up against a wall, a ceiling, really. Um, we hit 70% of capacity in the worship center um, on half of the Sundays in 2019. And in the parking lot, we're hitting 70 to 80% more often than even uh, that capacity in the worship center. And, um, and in 2019, we had 151 uh, first-time guest households. Uh, that visited here at Harvest and who were inquiring at least a little bit about what it would be like to be a part of our church family. And so we, we recognize that um, the limited size of our worship center, our parking lot, our facility, and our property is really compelling us to uh, make a decision about that. And so we are in the very, very preliminary stages of research into adding a third service. And uh, we'll let you know as we, as we wonder about when that'll be and what it'll look like and, and, and so on. And I'm going to give you a lot more numbers, small group numbers, serving numbers, youth and kids ministry, all of that at the annual members meeting in June. A little report on Christmas. I really need to move here, um, but uh, record attendance. We've never had higher attendance than we had at Christmas this year, Christmas Eve. We had 1,586 people in our four services, and we're super grateful for that. Amen. <clears throat> So thank you for inviting people out. We did that You'll Love Benefit concert with Paul Belash, uh in early December and we raised uh, just under $9,300 for the Bayside Mission. That's awesome and we're grateful for our partners over there. And then in addition to all of that, um, Christmas Hope, which is our... Let's, let's help some families in our own church body that are hurting in the small groups do all of this work and they raise money in the small groups and then it goes to buy gifts and such for, for families in our church. And uh, just under, just over 5,500 was given to do that. And in fact, we met all of the needs that we knew about and then we sent some extra money out of that to uh, uh, to uh, Children of Promise, Envisage, and, and Prison Fellowship, three of our partners. So grateful again for your love and care for one another. I want to talk for a moment about our DNA evaluation that we have undertaken as elders. And uh, those of you who know, um, our fellowship of churches uh, was dissolved in uh, June of 2017. The Harvest Bible Fellowship came to an end. And um, shortly after that, we began an evaluation process in order to determine what needed to change in our church in light of the crisis that hit our mother church in Chicago, In order to determine um, what is biblical about what we're doing, what is best practice, and what might be uh, toxic and unbiblical and needs to be rejected and changed. We recognize that our mother church implanted all of its DNA in us. And so we needed to look really deeply into the kind of church we were to make sure that we're not walking down the same path uh, that our mother church did. And so... um, We identified 100 line items of DNA that we have been going over one by one. Um, And please understand that this is a deep dive into all aspects of our ministry so that uh, when we come to you with a report and recommendations about our church's identity, that we're doing so with great confidence because we have poured over these things and we have searched the scriptures and we have prayerfully committed all of this to the Lord. And we acknowledge, I'm going to acknowledge on behalf of our elders uh, that, um, and some of you have graciously pointed out, you've sent emails to us and pointed this out, um, that the process of evaluation has taken much longer than what you thought it was going to take. And it would seem that we are um, dragging our feet a little bit as elders. And as of right now, I'll just report to you that we are 70% of the way through the evaluation. We have another three-hour session booked uh, for later this month to continue that process, and uh, we would ask you to uh, continue to pray for us as as we work carefully through the kind of church becoming the kind of church that God really wants us to be, and our pledge is that the evaluation will be completed this spring, that we'll enter into a visioning process following that, and our heart and our commitment to you is that we're going to report on all of this at the annual members meeting in June. So thank you for your patience. Thank you to those who who took the time to write to the elders. We really do appreciate it. And please continue to pray. Now along the way, some of you in those emails um, also pointed out that it seems like we're not advancing on any mission or vision initiatives. And we do need to complete the DNA evaluation before we enter into a new visioning process and the ministry is still carrying on, though. There's still a lot going on in ministry, in children, in youth, and adult ministries, our soul care ministries, our small groups. There's a lot going on, and we're accomplishing much. And I just want to hit on a few things here really quickly. But the first thing is, you just think about this address, this location, 7 George Street. We, we just finished the capital campaign. We're not even quite three years into this building. God has been blessing what's been going on here. But we're still kind of getting used to what ministry looks like here. And So I appreciate your patience on that. But this is a big vision thing that we just finished. And uh, we're grateful for that. Um, church planting. It is on our heart to plant a church in Alliston. And we haven't forgotten that. It's just we haven't been able to put any money aside for it. It just doesn't seem like the timing is right for it yet. But now the one small group we had there has multiplied to two and that's an indication that something's going on in Alliston that we want to be a part of. And so continue to pray to that end. We do want to go there. It's still in our heart to do it. In Cameroon, our major overseas partner, The two churches that we have there that are part of our network that we've been coaching and overseeing, they took it upon themselves, those two pastors, to start a training center for other pastors. And they just finished training six other church planters to go around Cameroon and plant churches. And so we're grateful for that, and we're still coaching and teaching. We do instructions in their training session uh, with Zoom calls, video uh, teaching. So there's a lot going on there. We're grateful for that. Our partnership coordinator is now Tom G., and he's taken over from uh, Terry Codling's capable leadership, and we're grateful for the work that Tom is doing on that file. Concerning affiliation, we want to belong to a fellowship, a network, an association. We want to. But we really believe that until we determine our DNA and figure out who we are, it's not a healthy thing to go and join something. It's kind of like we've put ourselves in counseling, and once we're done the counseling and have figured some stuff out, then we're going to go and get married to someone, okay? We're not going to get married before. And so uh, pray for us as we do that. We do want to belong to something. Um, Finance team, we're looking for members to serve on a revamped finance team. We're looking for members at large who have capability in the area of finance let us know. Send an email to the elders, elders at harvestberry.ca, and let us know you have some interest in helping us out with that. We're setting up an advisory team. The elders are working on a new team of men and women who are senior leaders in our church who will meet a few times a year to counsel and advise the elders and give us an expanded perspective on uh, matters related to our church. And you'll hear more about that in June. And then, as I mentioned, on a vision side, we are looking at three services. An elder update is going to go out on Tuesday. I'm going to invite uh, Peter Millard to come up right now. He's the chairman of our elders. He's going to pray in a, mo- a moment. But the elder update is going to go out on Tuesday. It's going to summarize some of the stuff I've said here. We're going to embed this video. Come on up, Peter. And, um, and, uh, and then um, you're going to have all that material in your inbox on Tuesday. Let other people know who missed it, that it's there. And, um, and then if you have any questions, always Harv- uh, elders at harvestberry.ca is the way to connect with uh, the elders. So let's trust God in light of all of this. Let's trust God for greater things. Amen? Whatever those things may be. Thanks for your attention. Peter, why don't you pray?
1: All right. Thanks, Pastor Todd. Good morning, everybody. Let's, uh, let's close in prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are mindful of the proverb that says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And Father, we are super grateful that you have directed the steps of this church for many years, and you've accomplished great things in our midst. And now Pastor Todd is challenging us to trust you for even greater things. And we recognize that all the planning that we can do, humanly speaking, apart from your enabling grace and strength and direction, will have no lasting or eternal significance. And so we commit that whole process to you. Father, I pray for our finances, as Todd has shared with us. We, um, we knew the day was coming when the, uh, the burden of, of carrying this wonderful facility would, uh, would land on our general budget. Uh, that day has come. And it's putting stress on our ministries and our staff. And yet we remember, Father, three and a half years ago, how you enabled our people to give far abundantly above all that we could ask or think. And so, Lord, we ask, please do that again, because we are trusting you for even greater things. Father, as well, I do pray for our DNA review. I pray for the men as they undertake this important analysis. I pray that you would give them supernatural wisdom and discernment, that we might truly know what is good and godly and what is not. And, Lord, may we all, during that process, have a spirit of both grace and truth, because there will be some hard conversations and some hard decisions to make. And yet in all, Father, we would ask that uh, you would have the preeminence as we consider these vision initiatives. I pray for the ministry priorities uh, here at home, uh, church planting initiatives, both in Simcoe County and overseas, and for our affiliation discussion. Father, we pray that you would show yourself strong on our behalf because we are looking exclusively to you to accomplish even greater things than you have in the past. And we trust you for all of that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.